I was a um, hospital chaplain for 10 years in Orlando, and three of those years I worked at Florida Hospital for Children, and we had about 88 NICU beds, neonatal children that were born premature. So when you have a baby in the room and then they put them in a little bassinet type thing, on the wall they put the baby's name and the mom's name and goals for that day and things such as that. So over the years, working with these nurses and going in every room almost every single day, I saw a lot of little plaques on the wall with the names of the babies. So I learned a lot of babies' names and learned what a lot of people are naming their babies nowadays. When I was a child, I remember in one of my classrooms, there was like three Debbies and two Lisas and a couple Cindys. And then later, of course, it changed to Brittany's and Heather's and those kind of things. And now you find even more unusual names. So the nurses and I at times would chuckle about some of the names that people were naming their children, like half of the mom's name and half of the dad's name. And I can remember one child named Heaven, only Heaven reversed, spelled backwards, which would be Nevaeh, which is actually a beautiful name. Nevaeh, Heaven backwards. And then sometimes they would do a certain name, and instead of a K, they would use a C, and instead of an I, they would use a Y, and they would triple up, you know, it's Kimberly with five E's at the end, that kind of thing. So everybody's trying to be clever, except a kid, when they get older, of course, they're the ones that have to spell it. Like my wife's name, actually, is Vonsell hyphen Annette. That's her first name, Vonsell hyphen Annette, with no middle name. Well, try putting that on a passport and a and a driver's license and those kind of things. So parents always think they're cute. That's why I name my, I like my name. It's like Joseph. Just give me one name, man's name. So I, I tell you, name all your kids very simple names. So I remember there'd be lots of biblical names, like there was Isaiah, but spelled with a Z instead of an S and all these things. And one day I saw the name, and I recalled this as I was putting together the sermon, I saw the kid's name was Manasseh. And I thought, well, you don't meet too many Manassas. It's uh, unusual. It's a great biblical name, but Manasseh was an interesting character to be named after somebody. So I, I went back and read in the Bible about the story of Manasseh. It intrigued me very much. So that's, as I read today, I thought, hey, there's Manasseh again. Because as we're reading through the Bible, at least I'm reading through the Bible in a year, and I'm, I'm disciplining myself to look for these passages and, and find God's truth in them. If you've been reading in the Kings and the Chronicles, there were some really bad dudes. And I'm reading like these people were so pathetic that they go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. It was, it was tragic. The northern kingdom was overrun by the Babylonians. Everything was taken away. The temple was destroyed. Ultimately, the, the fall of people at their own hand. People destroying themselves is essentially what it was. So looking at the character of Manasseh, his father was Hezekiah, as William said in our readings. Now imagine that you're in a courtroom somewhere not here. It's located in a galaxy far, far away. And upon entering this courtroom, you notice that there is a judge's bench. And you can't really see the judge because there's like this light. And then there's a lone chair, and in this chair there's a man. 
and he's seated with his head down. And on the judge's table is a large open book. We'll call it the book of life. And suddenly the judge's voice rings out that the defendant will now rise for the reading of the charges. The man in the chair painfully pulls himself to his feet. He stands, he's got hunched shoulders and disheveled prison clothes. His arms and his legs are shackled and he has a hook or a ring in his nose with a chain dangling from it. His hair and his beard are matted and is dirty. He looks worn out and he's sagging from fear and stress. And he stands. And then the voice speaks again. Manasseh, son of Hezekiah, king of Judah, you were charged with the following crimes against the Lord God and against your fellow human beings. The judge then goes on to read the charges covering many years. It rolls on and the prisoner's face sinks even more as each charge is read. And finally at the end, the judge says, how do you plead? The prisoner slowly looks up, opens his mouth as if to speak, but no sound comes out. And finally he squeaks out a whisper, pitiful voice, and he says, guilty. I am beyond distressed. I am guilty, Your Honor, but I beg and plead for Your mercy. You see, in this courtroom, there's no need for a judge or a jury or deliberation because all of the judge's judgments are pure and true and right. And the judge speaks and he says that the defendant will now face the bench for the reading of the verdict. Well, before I tell you, the verdict, I want to look at the background of this case. This is a, our own CSI kind of thing here. Perry Mason for your older folks. You see, Manasseh's story occurs after David, after Solomon, after the temple has been built, after the northern kingdom has been destroyed, and all that remains is the southern kingdom, which is called Judah. So this is around 700 B.C., before the time of Christ. Manasseh's father, Hezekiah, had been a good king. 2 Kings chapter 18 says that Hezekiah was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned for 29 years, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord just as David had. Everybody was always compared to David. It'll say your father, David. It doesn't mean he was your actual father. It means he was the father of all the kings. 2 Kings 18.5 says, Hezekiah trusted the Lord. There was no one like him among all the kings of Judah, either before him or after him. He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him. That's a very proud bold statement that the writer is making about Hezekiah. He was a good man. But when Hezekiah died and Manasseh became king, things changed. Manasseh might have stepped into his father's position, but he did not follow his father's footsteps. Let me show you that. If you could turn in your Bible to 2 Chronicles chapter 33. This story is told in 2 Kings and 2 Chronicles. 2 Chronicles has a lot more of the details for it. So if you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 33, 
Is it all right to read Second Chronicles in church? You know, well, we don't usually hear from that book. Well, you're going to today. Second Chronicles chapter 33, verses 1 through 9. When you find it, can you say amen? Can you say thank you for reading Scripture, Pastor? Thank you for letting me read Scripture. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. I wasn't even allowed to change the channel by myself when I was 12 years old. This guy's king. And he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. So, help me with the math. 12 and 55. Let's see, you got your 7, you got your 6. He was 67 at the end. Is that right? 55 and 12? 12 years old when he became king. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In other words, he acted like the people they drove out more than the Israelites. Here's what he did, verse 3. He rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals and made Asheroth and worshipped all the host of heaven and served them. So he built Baal worship. He built false god stations, places that they could worship. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. So he built idol worship in the temple. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery. And he dealt with mediums and with necromancers. That means people who called on the dead. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he made, he set in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever, and I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the laws, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. He was worse than the people that they drove out. That's pretty bad. The list of things that he did was quite shocking. Placing idols in the temple, consulting sorcerers, and sacrificing his own sons by fire in the Ben-Hinnom Valley. It was this valley that people in ancient times used to sacrifice their firstborn child to the foreign gods. So he has totally taken on the gods and the culture around him. Even though his own father Hezekiah, it said, was the best king that had ever been besides David. And if Manasseh thought that all of his wicked ways would impress the Assyrians who were the enemies closing in, if he thought that he was going to act like an Assyrian and therefore the Assyrians would say, hey, we like this guy. He's cool. Leave him alone. He was sadly mistaken. Look in verse 10 and 11. It said, the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders 
of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks. Some of them say put a hook through his nose and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. So much for trying to impress the people around you by acting like them. Kids, pay attention. Be yourself. Don't try and impress people around you by acting like them. See, now here's the good part, you might say. Now this man, this sad excuse for a king, will get what he truly deserves. That's it. Tie him up. Put a hook through his nose. You see, that's what they used to do to captured kings. Put a hook through their nose and lead them like a captured animal. Totally degrading them. Totally showing them to be at your mercy. So with this level of wickedness that Manasseh did, who among you, who among us, you, me, doesn't at some level feel that this man got what he deserved. You feel justified that he got that. You feel vindicated. You feel like justice has been done. Many times we think or say, this person deserves to die for what they did. If anybody deserved to die for what he had done, it was Manasseh. If anybody deserved a hook through his nose to be taken away and thrown in prison by the the evil Assyrians, it was Manasseh. If I could be God, for one day, I would be glad and satisfied that this guy got what he deserved. I would feel good if I were God about placing Manasseh in a jail cell and letting him rot in his jail cell. No chance of parole, no work release, no conjugal visits by his wife on the weekend, no cable TV, no weight room, no basketball court, no time off for good behavior, no extra portions in the cafeteria, no honor cell block, no letters from home, nothing, nada, nunca, nothing. But thank God that I am not God. And you, mi gente, should be glad that I am not God either. For I would judge you as I would judge Manasseh by the law and according to the law and according to the letter of the law. And my laws and my judgments would be pure and true and accurate and everyone would get exactly what they deserve based on their behavior. Each one of my handing down judgments would be handed out in full measure. But something happened in that cell block that we can't really understand, but we can read about. All we can say is that God came down to His level because He couldn't get up to His. Something very disturbing to the judgmental types like me happened in that cell block when Manasseh stood before the Lord. Something that should make you, at first blush, very uncomfortable and very angry. Look in verse 12 and verse 13. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God 
And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him. And God was moved by his entreaty. And he heard his plea. And he brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. What a powerful, shocking passage. The murderer who burned his own children, this apostate king, was redeemed and restored. He was not just saved from the death penalty. He was not just let out of prison to wear a bracelet around his ankle for five years of house arrest. He was restored to being king. And it says in his distress, he he called upon the Lord. That word means in his affliction. When he felt bound up, tied up, cramped, he had nowhere else to go. And when we are distressed, when we are bound with no place else to turn, there is no place to go except to God. And it is at these times that we see that when all else fails, God is there. When you reach the bottom of your resources, you will find that God is the rock at the bottom. Now, I know that's a pastoral cliche, and it's easy for me to say because, honestly, I'm not lacking in anything. I have health, I have my home, I have a wife, I'm employed, I've got you guys, I've got a car, I've got dogs, I've got two children. I lack for nothing. So it's easy for me to say that at the bottom... God is there, because, you know, frankly, I haven't been at the bottom very often. But I know it's true, so I'm going to preach to you what I know to be true, whether I am there or not. So I'm telling you that so that someday you can tuck it up on the shelf of your mind and say, I've heard that before. God is at the bottom of anything that I might need. When you strip away everything, God is there. If somebody took away my job, if somebody took away my health, if somebody took away all my money, if somebody took away my children, if someone took away everything, I got nothing. I still got God. Because they can't take away God. Cling to those scriptures which say, never shall I leave you or forsake you. Hang on to that because someday, if not today, you're going to need that. And if I don't want you to ever say, preacher, you never told me that one. That never shall I leave you or forsake you. That is one of the biggest promises in the Bible. So hang on to that one. So in his distress, he called unto God, and it says he, check out this word, he humbled himself. That word comes from the word earth. He went down and he made himself nothing. It says in Philippians 2 that Jesus made himself nothing and became as a man. So in order for you to find God, you have to reach the end of your own resources and you have to humble yourself and admit that there is someone and something above you that can help you. That's the essence if you've ever been to Alcoholics Anonymous or Narcotics Anonymous, any 12-step groups, to admit you're powerless and that there is a higher power. But until you admit that you're powerless, you will try and do everything on your own power with maybe with God's help. You see, God's the spare tire 
in your trunk. You know he's there, but you don't really want to call on him. You're just driving along, taking care of your own business. If you ever need him, you'll call on him. But, I, you know, I think I got this, God. You can just stay back there. I got you. It's not the way it works. You see, when you realize you have nothing else but God, you humble yourself, you make yourself low, you bring yourself into God's protection. And then it says, and God brought him again. God brought him back. God restored him. God redeemed him. God renewed him. God reclaimed him. God revisited him. God relaunched him. God repossessed him. That which was taken away from God is returned. He found God in the prison cell. So there is nowhere you can go. Never shall I leave you or forsake you. God is in the prison. God is in the palace. God is everywhere in between. So wherever you find yourself, God is there. You cannot go away from Him. Which is why if you did the rock thing last week, and sorry we ran out of rocks, it says He takes your sins and He casts them into the deep. So the only thing that He wants to separate from you is your sins from you. He won't leave you, but He's hoping to put you on that path of the straight and narrow path to take away from you that which you can't do for yourself. And somewhere in that prison cell, Hezekiah had plenty of time to look at his life and said, oh my word, look what I did. And he saw the hideousness of his own sin compared to the incredible beauty of God. And when he saw that comparison between himself and God, he entered into worship. Now see, the danger for you and I is we compare our hideousness to the hideousness of those around us, and we say, my hideousness is not as bad as your hideousness. Therefore, you're a little bit more hideous than me. See, we're comparing ourselves to each other rather than to God. And when you compare yourself to each other, you can say, well, I, don't, I would never do what they did. It doesn't matter if you would do what they did or they do what you would do. It's how does that compare to the Word of God and the love of God in God? There's a great little quote from the book Steps to Christ. It says, as you see the enormity of sin, as you see yourself as you really are, do not give up to despair. It was sinners that Christ came to save. But first you have to see yourself as you really are and realize that you got to stink about you sometimes. And when your stink can only be cured by the man who takes away the stink. And so here's the, the amazing thing. Here's the scandalous grace of God. He brought back this sinner from the dead, from prison. This is the part that really upsets me. And God did this. What really upsets me? God did this without asking me for my advice or what I thought of it or what he should do because I would have said to him, no way, Jose, excuse me, Jose, for using your name. No way, Jose, should this man ever get out of prison. Never, nunca. Never should this man get out of prison. He gets exactly what he deserves. There's no way that someone like Manasseh should ever see the light of day, let alone be king again. He set up idols in the temple. He burned his own sons. He sacrificed them. He sought out witches. How could God do this? 
Well, God didn't do it because Manasseh deserved it. God did it because of his own, check this out now, God did this because of his own mercy and grace, his own inward goodness. God is love. God doesn't possess love. God is love. And all the judgments of God at the end of time will only be based on the fact that people chose to separate themselves. And out of love, he honors that choice. And he lets people deal with the consequences of their own choice. God did it because he is the one true judge. God did it because of the death of Jesus. And you might be thinking, well, preacher, how can that be? Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet at the time of Manasseh. How could the death of Jesus pay for the sins of Manasseh? I'll refer you to one verse that I love, Revelation 13, 8. Jesus was the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So somewhere back in all of eternity, God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit got into perfect unity, and Jesus said, we see the path these people are going to take, and I will go down and die for these people and their sins. He saw Adam and Eve fall. He saw people like Manasseh. He saw people like you and me. He saw our sins and he said, I love them so much, I will die for those sins. So Jesus was as good as dead back in eternity. Now that's hard for us to understand. I don't understand it. That's what Scripture says. So I'm not trying to be an idiot, but I'm going to believe what the Bible tells me. That's not called blind faith. That's just called faith. You see, the death of Jesus on the cross pays for all the sins of the world. Don't buy into that thought that there was one way of being saved in the Old Testament and there's one way of being saved in the New Testament. There's one plan of salvation and that's the death of Jesus. But you, Wow, you guys. There's one plan of salvation and that was the death of Jesus. Thank you. It's an amazing message with shocking implications that forgiveness is offered to us not because of the great things we have done, but to God be the glory. Great things He has done. So loved He the world that He gave us His Son. And I don't remember the next lines of that. Something in atonement for sin. And enter, open, enter the floodgates, open, that all, all may come in. So Manasseh went from being hooked through his nose in sin to being hooked in his heart of love for Christ. Still a slave, but now a slave to God. A willing bond servant. You see, this is the good news that you and I are called to take to the world. This is our mission. Go into the world and preach the Gospel. We are called to live this story, to have our walk with God be visible where other people can see it, relevant, meaning up-to-date, and it applies to what's going on in this world, and sacrificial, to give to other people until it hurts. You realize that if you give and it doesn't hurt, you haven't really given at all. I always think of that like when somebody comes to the door and they're collecting canned goods, let's say, 
And I'm like, oh, yeah, okay, canned goods. I go in the closet. Okay, what's in there that I don't really like? And in the back, there's some can of cranberry sauce from two Thanksgivings ago and a can of green beans that had bacon in it that I didn't know when I bought it. Oh, yeah, here's the, I don't really need these. Yeah, you can have them. They didn't, I didn't give to anybody. They just helped me throw out my trash. Goodwill. Yeah, I don't wear these clothes. I don't wear these anymore. Here, you can have them. They just help you get your closet clean. That wasn't giving. That was helping somebody's helping you re- reroute your clothes. The way we live should be visible. Other people can see it. Sacrificial, it's got to hurt. And relevant, it's got to be appropriate to this day and age. If you're walking around living in the 1950s, nobody's going to notice you except to think that you look a little bit odd. And I'm not even talking about the way you look. I'm talking about the way you carry yourself. You're all hip. It's almost 2020. We need to have a 2020 vision. So Manasseh returned. He was made king again, and he lived a different life. He lived a grace-filled life. Read about it in the rest of 2 Chronicles 33. How can we fathom such love? It comes from God. It doesn't come from us. This story should make you uncomfortable until you realize that the same grace that saved a terrible man like Manasseh is the same grace that saves you. Oh, you might not be as bad as Manasseh. That's because you're comparing your hideousness to his hideousness. But when you look at yourself and your sins in comparison to the glory of God, you say, Lord, who am I to approach you? I come because you have called me. Come boldly into the throne of grace to find the help that I need. So you don't go to God with what you got. You come to God with your hands empty. And you say, fill these hands. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up. I got nothing to offer you, God, except myself. And he says, that's all I want is you. All God wants is you. Little old you. To see when attendance grows at church, but it's really not important how many people come to church. It's how many important, it's more important how many people leave church changed. Changed to serve. The Spirit doesn't call you here just to be entertained. The Spirit calls you here to be changed into the likeness of God, to be nearer to the heart of God. So I invite you to dwell upon that. Lord, how can you change me? Make me into your likeness. Before I pray, I want to remind you, there's a Vespers tonight at 7, and if anyone wants to put a praise note on the wall, there's two tables. Fill them up till they overflow, and there's cards from last week out at the table that you can have, and then the action station sheets over there. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, for your plan of salvation, that even before time began in the uh, halls of eternity, Jesus said, I will die for these people whom I love. So bless us, Lord. May we serve him. May we see ourselves not in relation to each other, but in relation to you, the holiness of God. May it draw us closer, nearer, to the heart of God. Bless us as we serve you in Christ's name. Amen.